0: This is just a quick message to let you know that Elucidations now has a blog. Check it out at lucian, that's L-U-C-I-A-N, lucian.uchicago.edu, slash blogs, slash elucidations. Check it out. Let us know what you think. Elucidations, a philosophy podcast ordinarily recorded at the University of Chicago, but which today is being brought to you from Amsterdam. I'm Matt Teichman, and with me today is Alexander Baltog, Associate Professor of Logic at the Institute for Logic, Language, and Computation in Amsterdam. And he's here to talk to me about the logic of knowledge. Alexander Baltog, welcome. Hi. Maybe we can just start off by talking about the distinction between knowledge and belief. So for people who haven't thought about this before, it might at first seem like knowing something is kind of like the same thing as believing it. So what's the difference there?
1: I personally have no clue, but um, I can offer opinions that were offered by various philosophers on it in connection with which I, as a logician, am interested in the, what are the logical distinctions between these concepts or or more specifically, if there are more than one concept of knowledge, or there are many, and similarly for belief. So the standard common wisdom in philosophy and is that knowledge is factive. In other words, if you know something, then that thing is actually true, by definition, so to speak, while uh, belief is uh, not necessarily so. Right? So that's the fundamental distinction on which I think most philosophers and I think even people on the street would agree that that is kind of a meaningful distinction. Now beyond that, um, all hell breaks loose, people don't agree on more than that. So um, until 1960s, Gettier, counterexamples, it was kind of part of the common wisdom among some philosophical circles that Plato claimed uh, that knowledge is nothing but justified true belief now that this is is no longer accepted by the majority of epistemologists and actually people who know more about history and about plato than i do uh, nowadays tend to believe that in fact plato never claimed that uh, yeah so the identification between knowledge and justified belief is now kind of almost universally rejected the main question in epistemology i would say in the last 30 years or 40 years was uh, essentially what is the missing ingredient in this equation. Knowledge equals justified true belief plus what? On the other hand, of course, there are some assumptions in the very equation, namely that knowledge is a species of belief. There are people, uh, there are philosophers who deny that, that actually say that that's not the case. But the majority do agree that knowledge is a species of belief that is truthful, it's effective, so it's true belief, and is in some sense justified the question is, what's the rest? And this is where every philosopher worth his name in epistemology has a different opinion. My view on this is that the work done by epistemologists in, in these last decades on this issue is extremely variable. not necessarily because of really solving the problem in a definitive manner so to speak, kind of giving the perfect definition of what knowledge is or should be but because of all the fine distinctions that come with these various conceptions. So each conception of knowledge proposed by people like Nozick, Sosa, Dretzke, Lehrer, Williamson, each of these conceptions comes with some type of characterization that seems to capture, according to many people, some features of what day-to-day usage of knowledge means, maybe missing others. And my point is that in certain contexts, these features are enough for us to meaningfully identify it with with knowledge, with capital K, although in other contexts there might not be enough. So while philosophers are engaged in debating each other on the issue and finding counterexamples to each other's definitions, which I think is an interesting game but can go forever because there are always some exceptions to almost any definition in science or philosophy. For me, the most important thing is the precisely the fact that these definitions do make explicit certain hidden features, certain assumptions. And essentially, they, uh, they may contribute to a typology or a classification of different kinds of knowledges, if you like, or forms of belief that are effective, among which a scientist doesn't necessarily have to choose from them, and to kind of be partisan of one or the other, can just pick the one that he needs for a specific task. So for instance, in game theory, in various game situations, knowledge plays and beliefs play an important role. Now, traditionally knowledge in this context was identified with a very specific conception, and very limited, I would say, for very poor from a philosophical point of view, namely Aumann's notion of knowledge, which is the same as it's a partitional knowledge. Um, It's fully introspective, positive and negative introspective, absolutely certain. And uh, it matches uh, one of Hintika's original Kripke model-based formalizations, namely the one in terms of equivalence relations. Now, most philosophers agree, including Hintika, that this is not a good model for our day-to-day usage of knowledge, and also not for the usage of knowledge in, say, empirical sciences. Uh, It might match some extreme cases of knowledge as in mathematical knowledge, but uh, even there, people disagree.
0: What we have here is an example of a, an attempt to give a formal theory of knowledge and how it works. It's a kind of mathematical consequence of that theory that if you know something, then you know that you know it, according to this theory of knowledge. So that would be what we call positive introspection,
1: right? Yes.
0: Yeah. And negative introspection is sort of a similar thing. Uh, that's the consequence that if you don't know something, whatever it is, then you know that you don't know it.
1: Yeah. So these principles have um, been initially assumed by logicians and uh, by some logicians and in economics, uh, in game theory, by um, by Aumann as part of the definition of knowledge. On the other hand, uh, everybody agrees that there are counterexamples to that. Many philosophers claim that actually that's what makes knowledge in- interesting. Uh, For instance, the dialogues of Plato would be meaningless if knowledge would be negative introspective because typically that's what happens in a platonic dialogue. Socrates picks up on some person who believes that he knows something and then deconstructs uh, his justifications uh, via dialogue so that in the end the person concludes that he didn't know it after all, what he claimed to know. Socrates' claim to wisdom is simply that he's very good at that and knowing what he doesn't know. So Socrates may be the only negatively introspective person in the whole, uh, in the whole drama, uh, while all the others, as typical for people, uh, have some wrong beliefs about their knowledge. So they think occasionally that they know things that they later discover not to know.
0: It seems like this happens all the time. I'm often really convinced of something, and then later on we discover that we were wrong about it. And it seems like it's maybe a bit of an extreme position to say that can't ever happen.
1: So this is what many philosophers debated for a long time, and um, one of the main uses of logic or formal logic by epistemologists is precisely in debating these kind of principles, the positive introspection, so-called KK principle from knowledge knowledge, and the negative introspection, and so on. Um, there is also the problem of logical omniscience essentially uh, capturing the formal feature of most models of knowledge, most formal models, uh, that um, knowledge in that sense is closed under logical inference. If you know something, then you know all the consequences of that thing. So that again strikes most people uh, and most philosophers as kind of unrealistic, since by this conception, people who know the axioms of Peano arithmetic will automatically know all the theorems, including the unproven ones the main use of model logic or epistemic logic uh, in philosophy till now has been to make precise these principles so that people can debate over them. From the perspective of the work that we are doing here at ILC, me and my colleagues, uh, Johan van Bentham, uh, Sonia Smets and a number of others, this use of logic in epistemology, the one that I just mentioned, is somewhat obsolete. We, We think that logic can do better than that the logic can deal more directly with some deeper epistemological issues. And in particular, the stress in the work that I've been doing is on features that are not captured by traditional epistemic or model logic. So features such as the dynamics of beliefs, the dynamics of knowledge. So this is essentially the way our beliefs or knowledge change in various ways. So this includes um, the sources of knowledge. How do you get to believe or know something? Yeah. So this is kind of the prehistory of knowledge. The way the information is processed after that, say by inferences, by uh, introspection or other forms of processing. And then next, the way beliefs or knowledge change in the face of things that might happen in the future, such as receiving new information. So uh, that's the so-called problem of belief revision. So when you believe something, and especially when you believe so strongly that you believe that you know it, and then when that something turns out to be false, as it happens in, this, um, in day-to-day life, as you mentioned very often, but also in Socratic dialogues, then the moment of realization that your belief or your claim knowledge was false you have a problem, right? So the problem is actually a realistically hard problem, a problem that people face, I think, in real life, namely what to believe when your most core beliefs are shattered. So that's called the problem of belief revision, and um, logicians developed very sophisticated settings and technical tools to approach it, to kind of formalize postulates about rational laws that would govern the process of belief revision. How would a rational, quote-unquote, agent revise his beliefs or her beliefs in face of such belief-shattering new information?
0: Yeah, so for example, let's say that I was absolutely convinced that Harrison Ford was in the Back to the Future movies, and someone challenged this claim of mine. Then I I went on Wikipedia, and uh, then I actually determined, oh, this is wrong, you know. Harrison Ford was not in any of the Back to the Future movies. Then that raises a question about, well, how does that process work? Obviously, I have to get rid of my former belief that Harrison Ford was in the Back to the Future movies and replace it with this new belief, you know, the belief that he wasn't. But then what if that new belief conflicts with some of my other beliefs? What do I do with them? And so on and so forth.
1: Exactly, because beliefs uh, are not isolated, right? So beliefs, for a rational believer, or even for an irrational one, still, uh, they are coherent with each other. So beliefs form a system in a person's mind. So when you give up one, you may have to give up many, and sometimes there is a choice. So you can have alternatives. So that's the problem of belief revision. There are subsequent problems, more connected back to the problem of what really is knowledge. So to take up your example one step further... Uh, you go on Wikipedia and you check, quote-unquote, this information that you received that shatters your previous beliefs. But let's suppose that as it happens, Wikipedia got it wrong. In fact, you were right to start with. Uh, this can happen, right? So Wikipedia is, as we know, not a fully reliable authority <laughs> uh, on, uh, on matters of anything. So suppose that actually you are right in your initial belief, you had the justification and you remembered seeing the movie, And the belief is correct. Was this knowledge? So according to some conceptions of knowledge, this was not knowledge, despite being true, belief, and justified. And the proof that it's not knowledge is precisely that it was so easily shattered by you looking on Wikipedia. So by the fact that you looked on Wikipedia, you lost your belief. And that was rather easy, right? So that can't be knowledge, according to some conceptions. So, from a dynamic point of view, this means you'd like to require of a concept of knowledge to have a kind of robustness, uh, Hindika talks of robustness, or stability. Some people mention stability, or to be persistent in the face of new information. Now, how this is to be properly understood, it's still, uh, it's of course, a matter of debate. So, just again, to get back to the example, I assumed that in fact your true belief was shattered because of some new but false information, that Wikipedia got it wrong. So according to the so-called concept of defeasible knowledge, or defeasibility theory of knowledge, that's not a good example because you might still have known what you claim to believe, because according to this theory, uh, in order for it to be qualifying as knowledge, it should be robust in the face of any new true information. And your belief was shattered by some false, essentially by a lie or by a misprint, by a misinformation. And that's beyond what knowledge, uh, according to this conception, does. And the argument is the following. By misinformation and lies, you can make almost everybody change their minds about almost everything, except maybe, you know... uh, proven mathematical theorems (laughs) for some people, (laughs) so that it's too much to require robustness in the face of anything, any kind of evidence. So the defeasibility theory requests robustness or stability in the face of any new true information. Now, there still are examples from, say, real life, examples or science in which true justified beliefs can be still lost even after revising with true information. Again, because of the way the beliefs are related in one's own system, some piece of new true information might throw doubts over some belief, even if it doesn't formally disprove it. So, for instance, if the information on Wikipedia is that typically uh, your favorite actor was not playing in this kind of movies, you know, that uh, he prefers some soap operas rather than... uh, then, then this might throw doubt over your prior belief that he actually played in that movie. It's like, hmm, maybe he didn't. Which is enough for you not to believe anymore, I mean, full belief anymore, in the fact that he played in this movie. Right? So you lost your full belief in this thing, but you didn't receive anything wrong because the information is correct. In general, he doesn't play in, in those kinds of movies. That's all you read. In particular, he may have played in this one. So, despite your doubts, you might be actually right to start with, and maybe you were, let's suppose you were, but still you lost it. So, you lost your true belief due to some true information. In this case, according to this conception, you didn't really know that he played. You know. So, you see there are some subtle points here having to do with what kind of robustness we require in and in the face of what type of information. So, if you like, in what context and uh, subject to what kind of dynamics. So what we are trying to do is to um, formalize, I mean, and we we did formalize some of these notions in a model logic, uh, epistemic logic setting, in which the dynamics is made explicit. So the flow of information, the way people acquire the belief, the the way they change their belief, is made explicit, so that all these subtle differences between various kinds of conceptions of knowledge are made apparent. So to give you one more example, there is another conception that says that knowledge is a fixed point of a certain kind of belief change. Namely, uh, is the kind of thing, So knowledge is the kind of thing that makes certain kind of information uh, receivable redundant. So if you tell me something, if you announce me that uh, you're not going to class today, and I say, ah, but I already knew that. It essentially means that what you just said is redundant. So this new piece of information in this particular context transmitted to you in this particular way is redundant. And knowledge means exactly that, right? So that you don't need to tell me that because because I already know it. In a belief context, there is also a similar fixed point if we're talking about beliefs, and you're you're trying to maybe believe something, and I say, yeah, but I already believe it. Yeah, believe in God, and I say, yeah, but I already believe in God. You don't have to argue with me on that. So that this fixed-point conception is a kind of... Um, it's different from stability, because it's not based on some kind of belief being persistent in time, in spite of some type of evidence, uh, new evidence, but it's about uh, simply belief being or knowledge being types of fixed points for specific epistemic actions. So the epistemic actions of learning from you, uh, sentence P, in this particular way, is redundant in this particular context. And being redundant is the same as saying the context, the situation, is a fixed point. My beliefs or my system of beliefs is the same after I hear the sentence as it was before. So that's the fixed point conception of knowledge. And depends on how you implement it, you get various kinds of attitudes the spectrum from simple belief to stronger beliefs to more robust ones to all the way to some forms of knowledge. So that's a yet a different conception which is easily confusable with the first one. Thirdly there are concepts of knowledge based on counterfactuals, uh, so counterfactual reasoning. So for instance Nozick and partially Sosa have talked about safety of knowledge, well Nozick about truth-tracking and it's about safety. And these are counterfactual features of knowledge. So they have to do with what would, how the world would be if what you claim to know wouldn't be the case. Or if the world would be slightly different than it is, but what you claim to know would still be the case. So th- that's the two sides of, say, Gnosis' definition. So Gnosis' definition knowledge says, look, if the world would be slightly different than it is, and P would still be true, I would still believe it. And dually, if the world would be slightly different in such a way that P is not true, I wouldn't believe it. Hence, if this is the case, I can be entitled to say I know P right, in this particular world. Uh, so this ties together, as you see, belief with uh, counterfactuals, with uh, reasoning about how the world might be or might have been, which is an even more uh, debatable and... Um, hard-to-grasp metaphysical aspect of, uh, of knowledge. Nevertheless, there are good models for counterfactuals, David Lewis uh, among them, sphere models, and they can be made into model logic kind of models, namely relational models, based on a relation of similarity, how similar is a world to another world. And putting this together with the logic of belief, one can uh, actually formalize this conception of knowledge and analyze its properties for instance, analyze its flow, its dynamics. And it turns out that the dynamics of nosic knowledge is very different than the dynamics of the defeasible knowledge that I just mentioned earlier, the one which is due to, say, Lehrer and other people, Stalnaker and others. So, in other words, these different conceptions, which may be based on some kind of metaphysical or ontological assumptions, they can also be distinguished in a more pragmatic behavioral way by just looking at the way they evolve, uh, the way somebody's knowledge, according to knowledge conception, evolves, is different from somebody's the evolution of somebody's knowledge, according to the latter conception. So the dynamics is different. So that's what we stress in—I stress in my work—and um, the fundamental role that dynamics of information and dynamics of beliefs play into capturing just the right nuances of knowledge that one is talking about.
0: So maybe to run this through an example, suppose I know that Paris is the capital of France. I think that's something I know. Then on the, let's say on the stability conception of knowledge, what that amounts to is that no matter how much new true information I receive, I'm still going to continue believing that Paris is the capital of France. So that's sort of the stability conception. And then according to this other conception, what we're calling the counterfactual conception, Even if the world were a little bit different from the way it is, so even if I had a brother, which I don't have, or even if the Empire State Building was one inch taller, I would still believe that Paris is the capital of France.
1: Mm, Well, no, this is... So um, it's a little bit different. Essentially, even if the world would be slightly different than it is, say you'd have a brother, while being slightly different, as long as Paris would still be the capital of France, you would still believe it. And if the world is slightly different by, as it is, but in such a way that actually Paris wouldn't be a capital of France, say, because the French decided back in the Middle Ages to make a university and uh, the headquarters of the king uh, somewhere else, then you would not believe it, that Paris is the capital of France, because by now you would have read the history books, so, let's say. So you would know that in the Middle Ages this happened, and you would know that Paris is not the capital of France. Uh, so that's the conception. It's like, if the world will be slightly different in these two different ways, like, uh, varying the fact, uh, both positively and negatively, then w- this would trigger a different, uh, either maintaining the belief or having the, uh, losing the belief, depending on how the fact will become f- true and false. So that's what Nozick calls truth-tracking. You see that kind of across possible worlds, across the closest alternative worlds, the belief tracks the truth, like the truth value of the sentence. So if the sentence is false, then you believe it, they don't believe it. If the sentence is true, then you believe it. And this is across certain other worlds, let's say, the ones that are not very different from ours. And that's the idea of this uh, truth-tracking condition. There are other things. Um, there is something called safety, which is almost a dual. And there are other things that are, might be more related to what you expressed earlier about your brother namely the so-called margin-for-error conception, which mostly associated with Oli Amson. So in the margin-for-error conception, essentially, you know things that are robust under small changes of the world anyway, as long as those small changes are the kind of things that you cannot really perceive anyway. So in your example, if, say, uh, the, the World Trade Center would have been uh, a few inches taller, you wouldn't perceive the difference anyway. So for you, that world would be indistinguishable from this world. And according to this conception, Paris should still be the capital of France in that world because you don't actually know which one of these two is the world, right? So hence, the fact itself should be a bit robust and your belief about it. You should still believe in that world that Paris is the capital of France irrespective of those two inches. So to give a counter example, if we are talking about your belief that a building... I think Williamson's example is a tree. Okay, let's say a tree is exactly 20 meters tall, right? So this belief, which might be based on your perception, is extremely fragile to these counterfactual alternatives because you can't perceive centimeters from a distance or or, or inches or whatever. So the world might as well be that, uh, in fact, the tree is 20 meters and uh, one centimeter. And then you wouldn't be able to tell the difference. Hence, Williamson will argue that you don't know that the tree is 20 meters exactly. But what you do know is that, for instance, that the, the tree is between 10 meters and 20, or 25, let's say. So 15 and 25, okay? Because uh, the difference is big enough so that this fact is robust. Even if the world will be slightly different, even if the tree is modified slightly, imperceptibly more, then the fact will still be the same and you will still believe it. Hence you know, in that sense, that the height of the tree is between these margins. Right? Somehow the knowledge should have a margin for error, should allow for this margin for error, that's the idea, so that small imperceptible differences uh, will not make a difference to what you know. And, of course, uh, the problem is, you see that uh, the notion of small imperceptible differences is not cumulative, it's not additive, because if you put together many successive small imperceptible differences, you get to a big perceptible difference, Right? And this is the essence of um, Williamson's argument against the positive introspection. Positive introspection says, if you know, then you don't know that you know. And essentially, it's connected to transitivity, so to speak, of the indistinguishability relation. So when I say, I know things that are true in all the worlds that are indistinguishable from the real world, for me, if they are not true in worlds that are indistinguishable from the real world, then I wouldn't know them anyway, because I can't distinguish these worlds. And if the relation of indistinguishability is based on this uh, vague notion of Williamson uh, essentially being imperceptibly different from the real one, then knowledge wouldn't be introspective because this relation is not transitive, right? So something can be tiny indistinguishable from the real world and another world can be tiny different from that one and so on. But if after seven iterations of this, (laughs) the tree can be one centimeter more, two centimeter more, and so on, each of them indistinguishable, but at the end you get one meter uh, taller and that you can distinguish or even before. So there's the argument against positive introspection of Fidanzo. Uh, there are a bunch of conceptions that seem at the first sight almost the same, right? but they are actually different, and they stress slightly different uh, points. My view again being that they are all worth actually investigating one. Second, that they are worth well formalizing, that uh, dynamic epistemic logic, one that involves counterfactuals as well in the in the setting, can formalize them all and they can explore the connections between these different notions, how they differ, uh, which implies the other, uh, the way they change in time, and that this can have uh, interesting consequences for uh, not only for philosophy but of also for science. So, getting back to the example that I started with. I started with this example from game theory in which um, Robert Aumann, a Nobel Prize economist, was one of the first to recognize that knowledge and beliefs play an important role in games and they should be made explicit. So he formalized this rather naive notion of knowledge, used it very successfully to prove uh, things about games and to explore the the notions of winning and uh, winning strategies in games. But later other economists, uh, other game theorists uh, in particular, and logicians saw that this notion of knowledge is too rough for the examples in Game Theory. So they moved on to various other things, mostly probabilistic settings involving visions of beliefs based on quantitative measures, and defining a plethora of concepts that they really needed in order to explore the Game theoretic notion. And what is funny is that while doing that, they rediscovered certain alternative conceptions of knowledge that were a long time before uh, introduced by philosophers without even knowing they discover so there is something called strong beliefs introduced by game theories which really recover some of the stability or the feasibility theory of knowledge and there is a, there are other examples so uh, in fact there are even examples that in my view connect well with this Williamson conception of uh, vagueness of knowledge margin for error conception so there are examples in game theory of that in particular in so called uh, incomplete information games by making explicit via this logical setting, these various notions, one can then directly apply them, put them to work in useful settings, such as uh, game theory, or uh, social kind of analysis of social flow of information, collective beliefs, uh, various kind of settings in which these notions will play a role. Another aspect of the work that we've been doing here at ILC is that our vision of how the formal setting looks poses some interesting new philosophical um, issues such as, for instance, the social aspect of knowledge. So there are people in epistemology that do so-called social epistemology, but they are, they've been always a minority. It's kind of a new uh, fashion and <laughs> still minority trend to worry about such things, about you know the collective beliefs, the notions of group knowledge, and the way those can be defined or understood. And also, knowledge in an interactive setting such as a multi agent or a social setting. But when you look at the in the in our logical setting, this social aspect is easily seen to be fundamental. Essentially you can't have any coherent notion of knowledge without the social setting. Because in order to make explicit say the first step, namely how do you get it? The sources of knowledge, among the sources are the other agents, right? The sources of the new information, in the end, can also be other agents. It can also be direct observation, but very rarely so. And that's the most, uh, essentially, the one that doesn't pose so many problems for epistemology. The problems appear exactly when you have other agents with their own beliefs and who convey information to you that might or not get distorted. And your example with Wikipedia is very good in this sense because it makes clear that you relied on external source, which was built by many agents collectively without even knowing who exactly wrote that article in order to correct a prior piece of belief that you had, based maybe on on a personal recollection of an actual scene of a movie. So you sometimes trust this indirect information, which is anonymously collected by a whole society of agents, a community such as Wikipedia, more than you trust your own memory and your own perception. And that's pretty interesting. Why can you trust it so? I mean, to what degree you can do it? Uh, To what degree this can fail? These are interesting questions and they have to do with social epistemology, with with knowledge in the context of a community and uh, the role that interaction, informational interaction plays into establishing and changing your your beliefs.
0: So this is a big problem that uh, we come across all the time in life, what to do with information we receive by testimony, whether it be from Wikipedia, from other people. Do you think that there are lessons that we can draw from formal theories of knowledge about how to manage the information we receive as responsibly as possible.
1: Yes, so just to give, without going into more formal details and to talk too much of our work, just to give a kind of a famous example, together with the counter-examples and with my current thinking about it. So there is a, a, a famous theorem, in probability theory, called the jury theorem, Condorcet jury theorem. And essentially, this says that in a society of agents... In which each of the agents tends, on average, to be rather 50 plus epsilon probability to be right than wrong on any specific issue, then at the scale of 100 people or more, it becomes epistemically useful to follow the majority, in the sense that it becomes overwhelming. The more people you have in the group, it becomes overwhelming and more probable that if the majority, say, among two alternatives, votes for P rather than not P, and by voting I mean they claim to believe P rather than not P, then it becomes more likely that P is the case. Uh, All right, so this is the theorem. The theorem is based on some assumptions, namely, typically the most used assumption is that the agents came to their beliefs independently of each other. Some researchers at the London School of Economics weaken these assumptions, to allowing some kind of communication, some kind of dependencies, but not a lot, right? So you can still prove it in weaker assumptions, but still something like independence seems to be required there. What does this mean in practice? Think about it in the context of uh, Google or Wikipedia. When you're Googling for something, the list of topics, the list of websites that you get associated with a topic that you Googled is selected automatically in the following way. It's selected based on the number of clicks that other people all over the world, you know, how many times they clicked on that particular website when this particular topic was mentioned. So what is this? It's the majority rule, right? So it's exactly the majority rule. Why does Google work? And it generally does. Well, it seems very clear. It works because of the jury theorem. Right? So it seems that it's pretty clear that on average, in general, the majority on such issues tends to be a good epistemic guide. Right? Some people made out of this big philosophical claims, there are whole books written about epistemic democracy. Majority rule as a kind of guide to the truth. Of course, on the other hand, we know counterexamples. I mean, there are lots of cases in which you Google and you, at least the first site that you get is not the most relevant one for your search. It happens and uh, um, researchers in um, in economics, well known that the conditions underlying the Condorcet surgery are not always met. Why are they not always met? Because, well, the standard explanation is because human nature is not rational. People don't come to their con- their beliefs just by rational, judging the evidence independently of each other. What they do is they tend to follow each other, essentially, essentially, um, sometimes going to extremes such as mass hysteria or you know some kind of fashion, informational fashions. Ideas can be memes in uh, Dawkins' expression. So things that kind of just spread like fire from a person to another in a society without a lot of checking, without independent confirmation, without independent thinking, just they, they do so. Okay, apparently we could say the jury theorem fails in practice because of people are irrational, so that they are not forming their opinions independently. Now, what we were doing, I was doing in an ongoing paper with Eric Paqui and uh, Sonia, is essentially we, are, uh, we agree with the conclusion and we deny uh, the premise. We don't think that this has to do with irrationality of people. We think it's perfectly rational, actually. And in fact, it's a consequence of, in particular, Condorcet's jury theorem, that people should do that that people will tend to follow the majority. It's very simple, right? So if you prove the theorem, then you have a rational reason for you to follow the majority. Namely, the theorem says that it's epistemically interesting for you, I mean, relevant, and as a good guide to the truth to follow the majority. So from the point of view of individual rationality, it seems perfectly reasonable, especially in a huge community in which you don't know what's going on. You don't have any other ways to check. You don't know if there is any communication. So you just tend to assume that these many other people, the majority, came to their conclusion independently. And then the theorem tells you that you should follow the majority. You should do what uh, in some terminology is called epistemic bandwagoning. So you should bandwagon. You should be one more, attaching yourself to the majority, changing your prior beliefs to get at least closer to the majority, belief rather than the original one. So it seems that it's rational for you to do that. It's epistemically useful because on average you'll get closer to the truth. On the other hand, you are not alone in society. So if everybody does what you do, or even just the majority does what you do, then pretty soon the conditions underlying epistemic democracy and the wisdom of the crowds and the jury theorem will not be met anymore. Because it's the most sure way to ensure that people will not come to independent beliefs, but will just follow the majority. So if a majority follows the majority, then the majority will not be right, will tend not to be right or there will be no reason to believe that they are right. So, to go back to the Google example, an improvement on the standard Google algorithm would be the following. If every time you type a topic, the sites are ordered not only to the number of clicks, this is the first information, but also there is a second order information, namely something that counts the number of clicks that were not based on Googling. If in addition to that, you get that second order information, that would provide you with a more reliable guide to the truth. And the price for this would be pretty small. Namely, every time somebody goes to the site, there is a question that asks you how did you get it, and you click on I got it by Googling or not. Why is that? The second order information is very relevant because it tells you, essentially, roughly, how many people independently came to the conclusion that this is a good site for this topic, that it's a relevant site. Independent means without Googling, without following the majority. Right? How did they come to this? We, we don't care. That's, that would be a third-order information, maybe because they are experts in the field, because they know the author, many reasons. Right? So they know how to search using other things. They look in encyclopedias, whatever. Just this extra piece of information would lead you to a search that would be, I think, an improvement on the current one, because it will minimize the possibility of this uh, epistemic bandwagoning to go wild and essentially to lead to very bad uh, outcomes just for a fluke, for the fact that there is a tiny majority to start with, which gets reinforced and gets out of proportion just because everybody follows the majority.
0: Alexander Baltog, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. If you have any questions about this episode, you can post them to our blog at lucian.uchicago.edu L-U-C-I-A-N, slash blogs slash elucidations. On the blog, you can get background information on the topics we covered and join in the discussion.